This uh, scripture reading is simply uh, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And uh, the point of the sermon will be for us to try to understand what that involves. Uh, But with those words uh, from God's word, let us pray together before we seek to have it expounded in the preaching. Father in heaven, we ask you to help us to understand the true meaning of these words. We pray uh, as you reveal in the Sermon on the Mount, these are words which we tend to flatten. As with the sixth commandment, I haven't uh, cheated, therefore I am innocent. Uh, But we discover that this law is far more searching and it reveals much more about your will than at first we thought with respect to these few words. So we ask you, God, to open it to us and to uh, drive it a little deeper into our hearts this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Here is a command, the seventh commandment, which has to do with marriage. And so uh, this sermon, as much as anything, will be a sermon on the subject of marriage. And as with all the commands that we find in the Ten Commandments, the only way to understand what God is expressing here as his will for his people is to see it in its relation to the garden. God expressing at Mount Sinai what his will for man was at the beginning, at the creation of the world. In other words, we ought to ask with this command, if we look at the Ten Commandments as the ten most important things to God, as I said, one minister most uh, once pointed uh, out to me, God was saying here, these are the things that are really important to me. If we were to ask the question, why this command? Why is this commandment so important to God? The, The only real way to answer that is by going back to the garden. But I think it's clear if we were to try to answer that question from the standpoint of man, why, why would we bother with this command from the standpoint of man's thoughts and man's value? And so if you were to look at man today, and really if you were to study the history of man, you would realize that this is something, what God is safeguarding here, that has never really been important to man. Even the Jews in the days of Jesus were eager to break this commandment. They just wanted to find out clever ways to do so, just as they were with the other commands. They were eager to get out of marriage uh, by easy divorces and being free of the charge of adultery, which Jesus tells them was not possible. But if you look at this command from the standpoint of creation, which I'm saying is the only way to do so, which is how Jesus answers the Pharisees, by the way, in their silly question about divorce. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus there quotes the Genesis account and tells them that from the beginning it was not so. In the beginning there was no divorce. In other words, he finds the question to their question about divorce in, he finds the answer to their question in the garden. And so teaches us there an important principle that all true biblical ethics flow out of the garden, the Garden of Eden, the creation of the world. And that sin itself does nothing to change true morality as it's found there. God doesn't adjust his code of ethics after the fall. I think sometimes we think that he does, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And we find Jesus throughout the Gospels uh, reasserting and upholding the ethics as they were found in the garden. It was the Pharisees that lessened the standard, thinking that somehow sin adjusted the code, but it didn't. God still requires the righteousness that is found there at the beginning. And there in the garden, what we find, 
We find, as I say, the basis of all the commandments, but there, what do we find with respect to Adam and Eve? We find that God institutes marriage, that he creates these two people, as I hope to say, with this purpose in mind. And in doing so, he gave marriage a certain purpose, which man is meant to honor in getting married. In other words, through marriage, we honor God, as with all the commandments. But God also placed certain restraints and limitations upon marriage there at the garden, which we should also notice. Restraints and limitations, which God never uh, did away with. And so to answer the question, why did this commandment make the list, the top ten, for God? Why, in other words, is this so important to God? The answer, once more, is found in the garden. The answer is that marriage is something that God made at the creation of the world. And so it's obviously important to him for this reason. Marriage is his idea. And it is something that he wants for man. One of the ways, as I, as I just said, that God or that man honors God in this world. And conversely, when man, as he does in every age, seeks to tear it down through various forms of adultery, so, uh, so much does he dishonor God. Now, what I find so interesting as we look primarily at what Jesus has to say about adultery in the Sermon on the Mount on the Mount, verses uh, 27 through 32, when he expounds the true meaning of this commandment uh, in juxtaposition to what the Pharisees were saying, what I find so interesting is that he tells us that divorce and adultery belong in the same category. In other words, when thinking of what adultery means, you shall not commit adultery, you must think of it in terms of a violation of the marriage principle. It is something that transgresses God's purpose for marriages found in the garden. And so on the one hand, he says, divorce itself leads to adultery in most cases. That's what he's saying in Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 15 or, or, or 19, excuse me. He's, he's saying in those two places to divorce and to marry another as invariably happens. In other words, it's very uncommon that someone will divorce and not remarry. Most of the time when someone divorces with remarriage in view is to commit adultery. It's to break the seventh commandment, in other words. And the question we have is why that is the case. Well, for the obvious reason that the new marriage is seen, Jesus says, as transgressing once more the marriage principle is found in the garden. And it does so in this way. Marriage, especially in Matthew 19, Jesus reminds us, is a bond that God makes. Not a bond that man makes, but a bond that God makes. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And so it involves, as we see at the creation, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it involves the joining of the two into one flesh. And again, it's God who does that, not man. That was true of Adam and Eve. The two came together as one flesh, and so they lived for the rest of their days. But what we ought to see is that that has always remained true. What God says in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 is quoted by Jesus uh, in Matthew 19. It's quoted by Paul in Ephesians 5 and in other places. That the two should come together. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be uh, joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. And as a result of this fundamental fact about marriage... Divorce violates or divorce must be seen as a violation of the marriage idea or principle that these two people should come together as one flesh and remain so for life. And thus Jesus says, again, what God has brought together, Matthew chapter 19, 
verse 6. Well, he says, so then they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Uh, having just quoted Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That is God's rule for marriage. The two become one. Let no man seek to separate them. It is a bond for life. It is wrong to try to separate the two. Or as the confession says, to study arguments so as to find a way out of marriage. As, for instance, the Pharisees were doing when they said, uh, can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? And as you know, people are still asking the question today. But then Jesus takes the discussion a step further when he says in verse 9, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, a similar statement can be found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, what we read earlier, where he's obviously expounding upon the seventh commandment. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality or porneia, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. Now, people seem to be in great difficulty over this idea, but uh, so far as I can tell, the sense is really quite clear in what Jesus is saying. Jesus is stating a rule, first of all. The rule is this. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. In other words, the sin involved in divorce and remarriage is the sin of adultery or the seventh commandment. And why would that be the case? Why would it be adultery to divorce your wife and to marry another? It is because, as Jesus makes plain, that man is not as able as he thinks to separate what God has joined together. In other words, against the notion that's prevalent today that once you've divorced the person, you're done, you're finished, you're free to remarry. I know ministers who say that. Jesus is clearly saying that isn't true. It isn't quite as easy as you think. Man is not as able to break apart what God has joined together as he thinks. He might write, as Hendrickson says in his commentary, he might write a bill of divorce. You might secure a bill of divorce from the magistrate. But in reality, the man has accomplished nothing in the eyes of God with respect to the marriage. And so if a man were to divorce his wife in securing a bill of divorce from man, he goes to the magistrate, he gets a bill of divorce, and so they, uh, the judge says, you two are divorced now, you're free to remarry. The question is really, at least in terms of Christian ethics, what does God think of this? His thought is, this is the shocking thought, but it is undoubtedly what Jesus is saying here, that the man is still married. From the divine viewpoint, the marriage is still intact. The two remain one by virtue of his own action. And this is something which, again, man is unable to do, or at least not as able to undo as he thinks. It isn't so easy to get out of this. And so it's for this reason that for the man now divorced to remarry is to become guilty of the sin of adultery. He has broken the seventh commandment, Jesus is saying. In what sense? Well, he sought to be joined to another even as the original bond remains. Remember, all the commandments have to do with the divine courtroom, not the human courtroom. I'm not interested in what society thinks. Society may say the man is divorced, he's free to remarry. Increasingly, the church is saying the same thing. But look at what Jesus says. He says the man who does this is guilty of adultery. Against whom? Well, obviously, he's guilty of adultery against the original spouse, since 
uh, as Jesus implies, the bond of marriage remains. And then also we ought to recognize, again, in terms of Christian ethics, that he is guilty of adultery in the courtroom of God. It is God who now regards him as an adulterer. And Jesus is saying, so should we. Well, as you look at what Jesus is saying, in both in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, and Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, the meaning is so plain, I'm simply amazed that anyone is in any difficulty about this. You cannot divorce your wife and marry another without being guilty of this sin, without breaking the seventh commandment. That brings me to the second way that adultery and divorce are connected. And it is found in the exception to this rule, which is not the emphasis of what Jesus is saying, but it does belong to what he says, even though everybody wants to discuss the exception. Again, the rule is to divorce and remarry is to be guilty of adultery, but he does state one exception. But again, in doing so, he connects divorce and adultery. Jesus is saying that if you divorce your spouse or if you are divorced from your spouse on account of porneia or sexual immorality, which, by the way, in the case of a married person, is exactly what adultery consists of. And so if your spouse commits adultery, then Jesus is saying that the rule does not apply. In this one case, to divorce and to remarry does not implicate you in the sin of adultery. It does not involve you in transgressing the seventh commandment. The reason should be obvious. It's because the sin has already occurred. It just wasn't you who committed it. It was your your spouse who committed the sin of adultery. It was your spouse who transgressed the seventh commandment. And that is something that Jesus is saying. Never mind the courtroom of God or the opinion of man. That in God's courtroom actually does constitute a legitimate breach in the marital relation. It carries with it for the innocent party. The freedom not only to seek divorce, though in all likelihood the spouse on account of the adultery is already being divorced. But not only the freedom to divorce, but also the freedom to remarry. To divorce and to remarry in this one case does not involve a transgression of the seventh commandment. Thus we see that only one thing succeeds in breaking the bond of marriage in the eyes of God, and that's adultery itself. But short of that, God's rule for marriage is this. The two shall become one, and so they shall remain. Which leads me to the next thought. Any discussion of adultery obviously involves some grasp of what marriage is and what it's meant to be. God, in bringing the two together in in a lifelong bond of marriage, let me just say, in answer to what so many are saying today, the world is saying it. I'm sorry to say even the church at times it seems to be saying this, but God is not seeking to enslave you. He is not seeking to promote your unhappiness. He isn't consigning you to a life of misery and of rugged duty. He is not uh, leaving you in a situation that you cannot break free from. Again, all of that is just too negative a view of marriage, even though it's increasingly common today. He isn't punishing man. God is ultimately, through marriage, seeking to do something positive. And so I am saying that we as Christian people ought to have a more positive view of marriage. And so, looking at it from the standpoint of the garden, we ought to ask, and even in terms of our own marriages, or those of you who hope to be married, what is God doing? And what is he seeking to accomplish in bringing together the two? 
Well, well, for one thing, let me just say, and this is so obvious from the creation account, that he wants them to be happy. He brings together the husband and the wife for their happiness, their mutual happiness. He is not, again, consigning them to uh, a kind of slavery and a lifetime of misery. But we as Christian people ought to put forth always a positive view of marriage and display the same by our own marriages. Now go back to the beginning. We see Adam there at the creation standing in a perfect world. And yet he was unhappy because he was alone. It's true he had the animals. But still he was unhappy. What he needed was a companion. He needed a helper fit for him. And so God parades the animals in front of him, but none of them would do. Following this, God does something amazing. He puts Adam into a deep sleep and then he made out of his side a helper fit for him. That's what Eve was. Someone, in other words, who was suited and crafted by God himself to stand by his side, to help him, to love him, to be his companion. Now, this ought to be clear to you who are married. You realize that this person is a better companion to you than any companion you had prior to marriage. But you see, that's because of what God did at the creation in making man first and then the woman. It was all part of his design. He intended the two for each other and then to be joined together in marriage. And so marriage is fundamentally presented to us as something that is meant to promote our well-being one to the other. As well as the well-being of both together. Paul presents, as you know, the same arguments in Ephesians chapter 5. His conception, his view of marriage is something that is ultimately positive and that promotes the welfare of both persons within the marital arrangement. But let us try to be specific. One of the ways that marriage promotes the well-being and the happiness of both is through sex. One of the main ways that the man and the woman come together as one. Now, again, we see God's positive purpose that the man and the woman were meant to enjoy a communion with each other in this way. The two shall become one. They were also meant through this means to populate the world and the church. God's purpose, in other words, is that man and woman and coming together as one were to have children. That is something once more that is decidedly positive. But God also, within this arrangement, places certain constraints and limitations. For one thing, the man and the woman are not free not to do so. I mean, to have sex. This is something that Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when he says, do not withhold uh, yourself from one another, except perhaps for an agreed, uh, agreed upon time, and only for a time, and then come together again. For your body is not your own, he says. And so, even in what he's saying there, He is appealing to the nature of marriage and God's design and purpose for marriage. He's saying now that you're bound to this person, you simply have no right to view yourself now as an individual. You're supposed to look after this other person and to see yourself as belonging to her and vice versa. Not only that, but Paul says, if you don't, if you do or if you do, let's say, withhold yourself from your spouse, if you begin to neglect your spouse in this way then you are actually exposing him to the temptation of the devil. You're exposing him to the temptations involved in breaking the seventh commandment. And so Paul says you must not do that. Marriage seen in this way 
is a means, as our confession says, of preserving sexual purity and of reducing temptation. Luther's, Luther's rule here is a good one. Twice a week, enough to keep the devil away. Is enough to keep the devil away. Do not withhold yourselves from one another, as Paul says. And so I would say anyone who says temptation to sin in this is not in this way. I mean, is not lessened by marriage, obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. This is one of his express purposes. God designed marriage in order to reduce temptation. But another constraint that God places upon marriage in this regard, and here we get to the real essence of adultery as prohibited in the seventh commandment, is that the two are meant only for each other. They are to forsake all others and cling only to each other all of their days. God defines marriage at creation and Jesus upholds this by his teaching as the two becoming one. I think we could equally place the emphasis on the two as much as the one. The two become one, yes. But notice that it's just the two and no more. Which rules out many things. It rules out that any man or woman should have other lovers while married. It rules out divorce and remarriage, as we've seen, except in the case of adultery itself. It rules out polygamy, even as we find in the Old Testament. Why? Because, well, it's more than two. God always intended that the two and only the two should become one. He never envisioned that there should be another. And as soon as a third party enters in, then you have adultery. And God says, you shall not commit adultery. But that leads me then to the third point. And that is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, um, verses 27 through 30. He tells us in those verses uh, that this command, obedience to this command, is far more difficult than any of us realize. The Pharisees, you know, wanted easy divorces. Against this, he showed them how they were just adulterers, Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Matthew 19. But even before that, he showed them how even within the marital estate and from a proper desire to remain married, there was still the possibility of adultery. And we might ask, how can this be? Well, again, we have to see how deep and searching and spiritual the law of God really is. He says, as we read earlier in in these verses, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 28 of Matthew chapter 5, which is really an amazing statement. He tells us that to even lust for a woman in our heart is to commit adultery. Here is a man who's married. He's faithful to his wife and he finds in a passing moment his a desire for another woman. Well, Jesus says you've committed adultery. You've broken the seventh commandment. And so he locates, as with murder in the prior verses, the sixth commandment, he locates the root of every transgression of this law in the heart or in the realm of the desires. To even want to sin is to sin, which is why it's wrong, by the way, to say that I'm putting this in quotations. I am a celibate homosexual Christian. That's the kind of thing that has become fashionable today in the PCA. To say, I don't commit the sin and therefore I am innocent. And yet the desire is there. 
But what that denies is that the desire is where the sin is really formed. And to say that you have the desire but do not act on it is exactly what the Pharisees themselves were saying. I may want another woman, but I don't touch her. Therefore, I'm innocent with regard to the seventh commandment. But Jesus once more says something that is truly stunning. That if you even want to commit the sin, if the desire even begins to be formed in your heart, then you have sinned. And then he goes further. He does with this command what he does with the last one, the sixth command. He warns us how our disobedience to this command, our little heart sins, our sideways glances and so forth, actually expose us to the fires of hell. This is what he says in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, in other words, the eye with which you lust, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. When will you begin to take this this sin seriously, Jesus is saying? When will you finally accept that you are a sinner, liable to judgment? Do you see what a terrible thing sin is and the, the dreadful consequences of sin, even the least sin? And with respect to the seventh commandment or the sixth, it does not matter. Jesus says you are not innocent. You are guilty. You are thus liable to the fires of hell. He says so in both places. And so he says, where will your repentance begin if not here in the heart, in the realm of the desires? And perhaps even before that, with a humble recognition that you are a sinner and hopelessly so. And that constantly in thought, word, and deed, you have fallen short of the glory of God. And so when Jesus says at the conclusion of Matthew chapter 5, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect, it suddenly rings true. If the law is so demanding as to demand my heart, my thoughts, my desires, then it must condemn me constantly, setting forth as it does a standard of absolute perfection, But Jesus is not just saying, uh, going back to what he says in Matthew chapter 5 with respect to lust. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better to do that, he says, than to have your body thrown into hell. He's not just saying you have to realize the dilemma. You have to see your own predicament. That once you felt bad, then you've repented. And then you can go on with your sin. No, what he's saying is realizing your predicament. Realizing what your sin, even your heart sin, has exposed you to. What are you prepared to do about it? You see that you've sinned. You see what your sin has exposed you to, even the fires of hell. And so he says this. All right, tell me this. Are you prepared to repent? Really? Will you actually turn from this sin? And hear the summons of the kingdom of God to repent and turn and be saved. Will you give up your sin at long last and come unto Jesus and be saved? Do you hear the word of God, beloved, when it tells us no adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God? First Corinthians chapter six. It simply amazes me how much sexual immorality we tolerate in the church. Do not be deceived, Paul says. And then he tells us that no one who commits this sin will inherit the kingdom of God. 
In other words, when he says, do not be deceived, he's saying, stop listening to those who say fornicators, adulterers go to heaven. No, they don't, he says. Not until they're washed and cleansed and made new by the blood of the Lamb. And then there is this further warning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me turn there. Verses 15 to the end of the chapter. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. And so hear God's word when it says, stop treading so lightly with this sin. It's the most dangerous thing in the world. You ought to flee it. You ought to mortify it. You ought to realize, as Jesus says, that the soul is worth more than the body. And stop making provision for the flesh to the detriment of the soul. What about pornography? Well, obviously, that too belongs in this category. Ask yourself this. What place does pornography have in the Christian life? Ask yourself that next time you're tempted to commit this sin. And then tell yourself in the face of that temptation, simply this. I am a Christian. Say that to yourself and say that to the devil. Do you know that that is all Luther would say in the face of temptation? I am a Christian. And so get rid of those things, Jesus is saying, that cause you to sin. The very sin that sends people to hell. And yes, pornography is one such sin. And lust is one such sin. People go to, to hell for these things. And so what place do they have in my life now that I am a Christian? You ought to get rid of these things. Now that you have a true sense of proportion and you understand what is really important, that the body is worth, or the soul, excuse me, so much more worth than the body. How are we to do so? How do we mortify such sins? Jesus says you ought to get rid of them, but the question we have is how? How are we to get rid of them? So often the Christian is, uh, he is no better than the man in the world. He has the same battles. He has the same struggles. He doesn't know how to get rid of them. Well, to that I say, not only ought you to realize that these things have no place in the Christian life, but you ought to listen to the one who says this, to recognize that it is Jesus Christ himself who's saying you ought to get rid of these things. Again, the very things that send people to hell. And then you should realize this about him, that he can help you. He is there quite literally to help you. That was his reason for coming into the world. He came for our sakes to help and to save us. It was the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Where are we to turn in the moment and the hour of temptation? We ought to turn to Jesus. And there he stands in heaven as one who is ready and who's able and who's willing to help us. He is touched by a feeling of sympathy as our great high priest. He, Jesus Christ, of all people, realized our dilemma. More so than we ever did. The terrible consequences of sin and so forth. 
that the smallest sin exposes each of us to the fires of hell and judgment. Well, look at him in the Gospels and consider what he can do. There we ever find him helping poor sinners. And then I say again, consider him as he now is, standing in heaven as a great high priest about whom it is said that he is able to help, that he's able to give help, uh, grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. And so let me just ask you this in the hour of temptation. Do you realize what you have in Jesus? Do you realize who you have? Do you realize what a resource he is to you in your daily battle and struggle against sin? Do you realize what a wellspring of power he possesses and offers to you? Grace to help in time of need. Have you begun to learn what that means? Again, especially in the hour of temptation. Or listen to Paul when he says the same thing in a slightly different way. Speaking of those who by the spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh. Remember the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 13. Don't forget about him. He too is there to help you, especially with respect to the work of mortification. That is the work of rooting out and getting rid of sin, even as it lives in the heart. Which is why it's so difficult to get rid of it. But you see, the testimony of the New Testament and the testimony, frankly, of every Christian who's ever overcome any sin like this is that the Christian is not left without help in this world. He has Jesus. He has the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying if you commit one little sin, one act of lust, or even if you commit the worst form of adultery, then you are automatically excluded from the kingdom of God. But Jesus and Paul are talking about a way of life, the things that characterize your lives, the kinds of practices and desires that are characteristic of those who are the sons of God. And and so if you are a Christian, then you are a citizen of the kingdom of God and you are meant to embody the righteousness of the kingdom of God as found in the Ten Commandments. And with that being the case, there is nothing that is so out of place in the Christian life. Than sexual sin or as sexual sin, nothing. Especially given how much God expresses his detestation for this sin combined with the fact that he has offered and given and expressed his willingness to help us in time of need here is a sin which you ought to get rid of jesus says you ought to root it out even in the realm of your desires and let me say this as well with respect to what jesus says in matthew chapter 5 what has happened in the course of our sanctification to true biblical fear You see, Jesus is expressing the demands of the law to us in terms of hell and judgment. And yet I would say perhaps it is the case that the church today is so casual in its attitude towards sin and temptation because we've lost it. We've lost the sense of biblical fear. No one is ever afraid, it would seem, of going to hell. But perhaps if we were, we wouldn't be so casual. We wouldn't be such Pharisees about God's law and sin. And so Jesus says, better to cast out your eye than to have your body cast into hell. But let me state the matter as I close positively. Since Jesus tells us the desires are what really matter. He's saying that you're not really faithful. I'm speaking to the husbands here, especially. You're not really faithful to your wife until she's your only desire. 
until she's the one you long for and dream about and desire. Not you see the only one you have. You can say that and you're just a good Pharisee. But the only one you want. There is the faithful husband. Only that lives up to the biblical ideal of marriage. And don't tell me that you have no control over your desires. You haven't listened to a single thing Jesus has said. Your every action influences your heart. Your every glance. Your every thought. If you don't want your wife. Well that's because you've stopped thinking so well of her. You've stopped setting your heart on her. And besides, if you didn't really want her, why did you marry her? And so I'm not interested in excuses. Look at what Jesus says here. And tell me whether anything short of this can be considered real obedience. You shall not commit adultery. Realize that this is a statement about the inner man as much as anything else. Or to put it another way, as Jesus does in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. Let us respond now to God's word by standing together and singing final hymn of the month, a cappella.